John Billett's going to read for us from Titus chapter 2, and uh, you'll find that in the church Bibles on page 1198. Thanks, John. Titus chapter 2, beginning at the first verse. You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks very much, John. Well, this evening we come to the end of our series called Disciples Who Make Disciples. And um, as I've said before, the, the reason why we've been doing this series is because if you were to summarize all of Jesus' commands to us as his disciples, all the things we're called to do as a church, it will be to make 
disciples. There could be lots of good things that we do as a church, but if we're not seeking to make disciples, then we're not really serving him faithfully. We're not being fruitful. In the Great Commission, as I read earlier, Jesus said, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. As we've seen from this picture we've used a couple of times over these past um, few weeks, a disciple is someone who has had their life changed by Christ. That's what we're looking at this morning, wasn't it? Somebody's had their life changed by Christ, who's been brought out of darkness into the light, into the kingdom of Jesus Christ, but who's continuing to have their life changed by Christ. Being a disciple is an ongoing work which is never complete until we meet Jesus face to face. And that's why it's helpful to think of it in terms of taking a step to the right. Whether it's a step towards the right for someone who's not a Christian, who's becoming more receptive to the gospel, or for somebody who's already in the light, taking a step towards greater maturity. And it's a responsibility that we all share. If we are disciples, then we are all disciple makers. And we need to ensure that we're better equipped to do that. Last week, we looked at discipling someone who is not a Christian. And how can we, we can read the Bible with them using resources such as the Word one-to-one, which we uh, did a little role-play with last week. And um, just to encourage you, I'd just like to invi- invite Sir Norman to come up to the front a minute, um, because um, he's uh, already been putting this into to practice. Uh, Norman, tell us uh, what's been, been happening this past week for you on the back of uh, last Sunday evening. Okay. Uh, The chap across the road from me uh, a few years ago broke his knee and he asked me would I walk round with him while he was on his crutches. He was just a little bit unsure if he fell that he would be able to get up again. So I started with that and then when he got better we kept uh, going for the paper every morning and I had never actually been able to say anything outright to him. One of the things I was able to say once when we passed Jehovah Witnesses, I was able to tell them how Lynn McCann got rid of them by she said, look, I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins and because of that I'm going to heaven. Can you give me anything better? And I was able to repeat that to him. But then last week when Noel was speaking, I thought I really ought to say something to this chap about reading the Bible. But I thought it might be easier to say, do you fancy a game of golf? But uh, anyway, I thought I'll see what happens. So Monday morning we were going out and our conversation actually turned to something spiritual. I can't really think exactly what it was. But at one point I then said, have you ever read the Bible? And he said, well, not really. But I do have a Bible. And uh, then at about two milliseconds, which through my mind went, maybe I should still just go for a game of golf. (laughs) But anyway, I said to him, at our church last night, the pastor was encouraging us to find someone and to read the Bible with them. What would you think of that? And he said, why not? So we arranged to meet last Thursday morning, which we did. And we went on the word word one-to-one. And uh, he was a wee bit puzzled by the word was made flesh and, that's, and the word was flesh. And I hope I was able to explain that to him. But he got further down and it came to uh, the bit, 
To them that believe in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. And he was really interested in that and really thought about it and talked about it, but didn't go anything further than that. So at the end of it, I said, well, would you like to meet again? And he said, yes. And uh, he said, but I'm working every day next week. But he says, maybe we could work in the evening. So it all seems quite good, and he seems quite keen. Brilliant. Okay. Yeah. Thanks very much, Norman. It's great encouragement, isn't it? And uh, we'll keep praying for you as you meet uh, with your, your friend Jeff. Well, this week we're looking at how we disciple someone who is already a Christian. Um, and in particular, how do we do a one-to-one Bible study with someone? Tools we use, um, we've, we've looked at before in some of our training courses. Um, it's always good to refresh our minds with them. But before we look at the practicalities, it might be helpful to consider what our objective is. What do we mean when we say we want to help somebody grow in our faith or grow to, to maturity? Well, there are three C's that really we want to grow in. There's uh, character, there's convictions, and there's competence. And it's hard to sort of separate them, them out because they're all in some way uh, inter, interlinked. But to understand these a bit, let's have a look at the letter uh, that Paul wrote to Titus, if you've still got open in front of you. Paul starts this letter by um, talking about the appointment of elders in verse 5 onwards. And he says that an elder must be competent. He must have competence in his role of, of managing or overseeing. But it says in verse 7, the reason for that, he says in verse 7, since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless. And he goes on to explain what blameless looks like in terms of character. It also says in verse 9, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So he must also have sound convictions. So there's competence, there's character, and there's convictions all coming together. And in case you're thinking, well, okay, that's fine for an elder, but what about everybody, everybody else? Well, have a look at chapter 2, the passage which John read for us. And the focus here again is on character, and in particular, how uh, the Christians live out there, their Christian faith in, in their different social situations, in the home and in the workplace. But that character in verse 1 is what is appropriate to sound doctrine, to sound convictions. What are some of the ways in which we, we grow in Christian character? Well, notice it's not just the younger men that Paul teach, tells Titus to teach. He tells them to teach the older men, uh, to be intemperate, Worthy respect, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and endurance. And he carries on, likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they, they live. Not to be slanderers or addicted to, to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. And notice here, he's telling Titus to teach the older women to teach the younger women. Uh, in other words, the older women should be discipling the younger women. The older men should be discipling the younger men. And Paul goes on to tell Titus to teach the younger men and slaves. But what is the, what is the motive for all this teaching about character? Well, have a look at verse 11. It says, having talked about all this uh, growth in character, he says, for the, growth, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation 
to all people. So the reason for the need to grow in character is the gospel. You cannot separate the gospel, the convictions, from the character. And as it carries on, it's that, that is the grace of God, the gospel, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So again, let's come back to character. The gospel teaches us to grow in character. Why do we do that? Back to the gospel again in verse 13. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So again, you've got character and convictions going together. Our convictions are our understanding of the word of God. And at one level, the gospel message is very, very simple. That we are sinners who've rebelled against God. We deserve to be punished. But Jesus took that punishment for us on the cross so that we can be made right with God. If we trust in Jesus and follow him as king, we can enjoy a relationship with God for the rest of eternity. But there's also a great depth as well. And the more we understand about God and his nature, the more we understand about what Jesus achieved for us on the cross, the more we will grow in our faith that the word of God is true and that God is real, and the more we want to live lives that are pleasing to him. So convictions are crucial to character. What about competence, though? Because this, this is really about using the gifts that God has given us to serve him, to glorify him. But it's more important than just using those gifts. It's actually our attitude in, in which we do serve him. So, the, again, the emphasis on character and convictions. If we truly love God, then we want to live a life pleasing to him. We want to do everything for his glory. We want to serve him with real joy in our hearts. And the danger sometimes with competence is we often view competence in, in worldly ways. So if somebody has a, a senior position in business, they must be able to make a good leader in the church. If someone's a brilliant musician, they must be able to, to play in a worship group. If someone is a great school teacher, they must be able to teach the Bible. But none of those is necessarily correct. Competence without character and convictions is a recipe for disaster. So if somebody is growing in their character, their convictions, their competence, how do we know? What are the, the markers? What do we see in their life that demonstrates what is going on inside them? Or well, two things. Um, one, a greater trust in God. A greater trust in God in all things. In all the, the uncertainty, in all the trials of this life, there is still a greater growing trust in God. Less doubt in him, less questioning of him, a growing trust. And secondly, a greater passion, just a growing passion. A passion in different ways, a passion to learn, a passion to, to pray, a greater passion to, to be like Christ. A greater passion to, to want to serve, to, to try and know what our gifts are that we can use for God. A greater passion to love, love others. A greater passion to witness to those who are still lost. A greater passion 
to make disciples. Well, how do we make disciples who are growing in their trust in God and in their passion for God? Well, the answer is very simple. We read the word. We read the word. We hear it preached. We read it on our own. And we read it with others. And a great way of growing is to read the Bible with somebody else. And um, we're going to look now just at reading the Bible one-to-one. And um, before I come on to that, I'm just going to like to ask Catherine to, to come forward. Because Catherine has been reading the Bible one-to-one with um, uh, somebody who's a, a younger Christian. Catherine, you come up forward and um, I'll give you... Give you this. Um... I just made a few notes actually to remind me, but it's actually Becca Bolton, yes, yeah. as you know, yeah. and um, I, I wouldn't have chosen to do it. But uh, about three years ago, when we were having the learning streams, I was really enthused about those, and unfortunately, then Liz said, I think you could be quite good at doing this. <laughs> so, anyway. Um, I really enjoy doing it. I'm not so sure that I'm actually good at it, but I do have a passion for it. And Becca is such a gracious person. She's so lovely. I think she's more patient with me than anything else. But we do meet. Um, the idea is that we meet in term time every other week. And she comes to my house, and I've been to her house as well. But And we you know, just have a bit of a chat and catch up with what's happening. And then we get to study. And we started, as I say, about three years ago. And Liz had started off in Ephesians, and I finished the, the book with, uh, with um, Becca. And then we went on to James, which was really good. But I think the important thing is that you're actually learning as you go. And I've written down, well, this was... For Ephesians, it was grumbling, gossip, and greed. And those were the things that we were, you know, sort of uh, thinking about very much. And it's actually very helpful and practical. It's not just something you're doing. It's just for your own um, Mm -hmm. uh, elevation or whatever. But then in James, the thing it was that really jumped out at us was facing trials. And that they were to be, be, have count pure joy. And we didn't feel that we could really sort of do that. But also to take, not to have favoritism, and I thought that was a great lesson to learn to and to think about. It's very important for all of us just to be at one with each other. And then we went on to John's Gospel because I know that a lot of people had started doing John's Gospel and we got to chapter four. Um, I found out a wee bit, uh, well, maybe both of us did, well, I don't know why, but, uh, you know, if Becca asks me questions, I then try to find out for next week something like, you know, who were the Samaritans, which is probably quite simple to a lot of people. But then I would look that up and then we would get back and discuss that or whatever need or have come to you and asked you, you know, certain things. And then we went to the book of Ruth, which was really interesting about God's protection and the purpose is fulfilled through that, uh, through Naomi, etc. That we really enjoyed that. We thought we'd just go into the Old Testament and do a couple of historical uh, books. And then at the moment we're doing Esther, and that has been really just, well, I think it's wonderful, really, because although it all happened two and a half thousand years ago, it's very relevant and... Uh, we learnt that God, even though his name isn't mentioned there, he, his will was just going to be fulfilled. And even Mordecai doesn't actually um, tell Esther that God's will will be, but he said, this is going to happen. And it might be through you, because he's put you in this position. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, he may have put you there 
for such a time as this. That really struck us. And then, as you know, Becca is expecting a little baby in June. And she had been telling me before we got into the, uh, the discussion, etc. she said that she was thinking about Psalm 139 and about God knowing you before you're even born. And this really, you know, had just really uh, encouraged her. And then in the, this, the guide that we're using, actually, is Jane McNabb, who came for the women's uh, conference a couple of years ago. And the book is really good. And then you'd, the thing is, you don't have to do everything in the book. You pick out what... You haven't got the time, that's the thing. So you pick out the things that would be relevant to what you're doing at that moment. And it was a cross-reference to Jeremiah, and that just jumped out at us as well, because it said that God was sovereign. He was looking after you before you were born. He was telling Jeremiah, and he said, Jeremiah said, but I'm only a child. What can I do? And he said, look, just go where I want you to go. Say what I want you to say. Open your mouth, and I'll fill it. And it really encouraged us to sort of think that if we do this, that we will be witnessing so those are the sort of things that Brilliant. I think yes, that yeah. have been coming out of it. Sounds and, like you've uh, learned an awful lot over the last couple of years. Yes, so it's, yes. It's, no, basically, it's been as good for you as it has been for oh, Becca, it, by the sounds of it. This yes. is the yeah. thing. Yeah. You, you learn together. Yes. And yeah. uh, then we, we pray for our families, etc., and anything else yeah. that concerns us. And the thing about it is, I mean, I've come to the end of career, as it were, in every way. And I think life is maybe easier in some ways, but for somebody like Becca, who's actually having to meet mums at the school gate, and you know, maybe them sort of thinking, well, you know, this Christian's a bit strange, although I don't think they do say that. But it's harder for her. But I think we can learn from each other and encourage mm. each other, and surely that's what it's all about. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Catherine. That's great. Thank you. Yeah, well, that is Titus 2 in action, isn't it? The, uh, the older women teaching the younger women, and encouraging them. There's different ways in which we can do one-to-one Bible studies, and one is to use different Bible study guides. What I'd like just to run through this evening, though, is the, the coma methods, a bit of an unfortunate um, name, I know, but it's not designed to, to send you to sleep. Um, it stands for, for C, for context. Why is this particular passage that you're looking at here? Um, o is for observation. What does the passage say? M is for, for meaning. What does the the passage mean? And the A, application. How does the meaning of the passage apply to to me and to my life? Well, let's just look briefly at each of those, then we'll um, put it into practice with a particular passage. The context, why is the passage here? Two aspects, really, to to context. There's the historical context about the book. Um, What do we know about the book of the Bible in which the, uh, the passage comes? For example, who wrote it? Um, what literary genre is it? Is it um, history, poetry, prophecy, or whatever? Um, where does it take place? When was it written? Why was it written? Was there a particular purpose for that book being written? And how does that book fit within the whole Bible? And then there's the, the literary context. Where does that particular passage fit within the book? Um, what is going on in the surrounding verses and chapters? So that's very briefly context, observation. It's uh, useful here to, to ask those same questions, the who, uh, what, where, when, why, how questions. Who? Who said it? Uh, who are the people mentioned? Uh, to whom is the author speaking? About whom is he speaking? What? What are, what are the main events going on in the passage? What are, what are the major ideas, maybe? What are the key words that are used? 
What surprises are there? What figures of speech are there? Then there's the where. Where, where did all this take place? When did it take place? Why was it actually mentioned at all? What was significant about it? And how is the passage split up into different sections? I appreciate we're going through this very quickly, but um, you know, do come and chat to me afterwards if you'd like to look at this in more detail. Also, can I recommend, um, when I think about it, this book by David Helm, one-to-one Bible reading, a simple guide for every Christian. Very short book, very easy to read with some great resources in the back. Third is meaning. What does the passage mean? And the more work you've done on the previous section, the observation, the easier it will be to work out the meaning of the passage. Just a few things to remember when we're trying to do that. Look for the author's intended meaning. Um, Check for the consistency. Um, Remember the context of the book, uh, the passage you're studying. Uh, Remember the general theme of the book. What the author said in other books that that he wrote. And other passages in the Bible, because Scripture never contradicts Scripture. So um, that is a good test for working out the meaning. And finally, how does it link ultimately to Christ? Because he is the one who unlocks the meaning of the Bible. So there's a few things to remember. But honestly, what we're trying to work out here is what are the different things this passage teaches us? And there may be quite a few different things. Um, but it's good just to work through what are the things it teaches us. And then having worked through that, what would you say is the summary of all of those things? What would you say is the main teaching point that brings all those together? So that's meaning. And finally, application. How does the, uh, the meaning of the passage apply to me? It's basically the question of, so what? How does this apply to me today? Recognizing the differences between the biblical audience then and, um, and us now, differences in time, culture, language, etc. God's word does not become outdated. It is living. It is active. Applications should come from the text. We shouldn't impose them on the text. So let's look at what the, the, the Bible says and then apply them to us. But ultimately, when you're applying the text, there are two key questions you want to be asking Yourselves. One is, what does this passage teach me about God? And how do I respond to that? How does it link to what he's doing in Jesus? Is there a reason for thanksgiving, or worship, or praise? Is there a promise to claim? If God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And that's something we need to claim for us at the moment because of some struggles we're going through. Maybe that's a promise that we claim. And secondly, what does the passage teach me about myself? Is there an example for me to follow? Is there a sin to avoid? Is there a prayer to, to repeat? Is there a command to obey? Is there an error to acknowledge? Is there maybe a challenge to face? It's all questions about what does the passage teach me about myself? Just um, some general points before we come on to a particular passage. And this applies to one-to-ones. It applies to small group preparation. But important stuff, some of we looked at last week. Uh, prepare well. You'll get more out of the passage the more you prepare. But at the same time, be flexible. Um, be aware of the questions that are coming from the person you're studying with. Allow them. Um, and almost encourage them to ask questions as you go along. Don't... Um, 
if there's some doubts in their mind, don't allow, don't go on without satisfying what that doubt is. If it's a question that's actually got nothing to do with the passage and could be a big distraction as we saw last week, then just come back to that. Just park it for now and, and keep in, in the passage. So listen carefully to what um, the, the other person's saying. Pick up on things which are, are worth um, going into in more, more depth, but then bring it back to the main point of the passage. And keep directing them to look at the text because the answers will be in the text. Um, they won't be be somewhere else. It's what the Bible says, not what we think it should say. Ask them what they think or feel about different ideas, because it may be a surprise in there which they just haven't thought about, or a surprise that's in the Bible. Um, talk about that. Um, talk it through. Be gentle. It's not an argument of trying to convince somebody and persuade them of the truth. Um, you're allowing the, the word to speak to both of you. Uh, so be gentle in that. Let the gospel come up naturally. Don't force the gospel, if you think they need to hear it, it'll be in there indirectly if, 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 it, if it comes up in the passage. It may be appropriate to go to another passage in the Bible, a cross-reference, but don't jump about too much. If they're a young Christian, they get totally sort of overwhelmed with knowing where to go and thinking they'll never get the hang of this Bible study lark. Um, uh, be, be sensitive to that. And finally, just um, reinforce maybe some points with your own personal testimony. Um, use that to, to illustrate and, um, and strengthen the point. So those are just a few, um, few key pointers. But what, I do, what we're going to do now is um, a little bit like what we did last week, do a little role play. Last week it was reading the Bible with um, somebody who's not a Christian, uh, starting from, from scratch, if you like. And we started with the Word one-to-one resource. Uh, what we're going to do this evening, and uh, Mark's going to come and help me again, is um, we're going to take a passage which I looked at... Um, Last Sunday morning, so it's still fresh in my mind. Makes it a little bit easier. And I'm going to hand out some of the work I would have done up to this point. Something like this doesn't actually take very long to do. If you've got some highlighter pens, you can just print out the passage you're studying, um, highlight who the people are, and scribble around all over. You don't need to do it on the computer, but this is just obviously so you can read it more easily. I'm assuming here in this, this role play we're going to do now that Mark's a young Christian. And uh, just to emphasize that point, uh, you know, speaking to Catherine earlier on, it is helpful for those who are mature Christians to be reading with younger Christians. I know there'll be some of you who do get together, and that's great, you know, to get together with another Christian, but I think younger Christians do need help from mature Christians, so um, you can be of great help in that. So um, what we're assuming here is that um, Mark will also read through the passage, but probably not in as much detail as I will have done. Um, we've met before, so we don't need to talk about the context of the book of Mark. Um, we've been meeting for a few weeks, so we're going into the next passage in the book. So we've, in this particular occasion, we've had a bit of time catching up. We've prayed. Um, uh, and in this case, I've asked him if he wouldn't mind reading the passage, as we mentioned last week. It's maybe helpful to do if it's a, a Christian, trying to encourage them in that. Um, I'm now assuming, Neil, I'm not going to do the whole study together. I'm assuming we've done a bit of context, we've done a bit of observation, which is what you see here, and we're moving on to the meaning and application. So um, we're going to take it from halfway through the study. We haven't rehearsed this or anything, so it could go horribly wrong. Um, But uh, it's obviously, it's trying to be a mock-up of what it might look like. So hopefully it'll be helpful. Um, If it's not, then... 
Um, ignore those unhelpful bits, but let's, let's, see how we, let's see how we get on. Okay, Mark, so we've done a bit of observation there. Uh, we're going to try and move into the meaning now and try and work out what this passage is meaning. What, um, was there, were there any surprises, though, for you? Because uh, that sometimes helps us get to the, the meaning when, when you read through this passage on your own. Anything really struck you? Um, any surprises that, that stood out at all? I, I guess um, uh, verse 5 really stood out for me. The fact that um, these religious leaders are giving Jesus such a hard time. I was very surprised. I'm not really sure why Jesus uh, says in verse 5, he still made no reply. We, we see that Pilate was amazed, but I'm not really sure why Jesus didn't respond. Yeah, yeah. I think that is probably the most um, surprising thing in the whole passage, isn't it? And um, Pilate clearly was pretty amazed himself, we're told. I think to really understand that, uh, have you come across a passage in Isaiah at all, in Isaiah chapter 53? Have you ever heard that read at all? No. Um, I won't go there now, but we would probably go there in this, in this study and then read what that says. I'm assuming we've gone there. So what they're saying in that passage is that um, uh, there's going to be someone in the Messiah who will remain silent, who will say nothing, he's innocent, and yet when he's accused, he remains um, speechless. So when we read this here, I think what we're meant to, to think about is that prophecy from Isaiah. It was written several hundred years before this and we're meant to think actually this looks like it's the fulfillment of that prophecy okay i think just to to back that up as well in case you don't believe me um there's another passage again we won't go there now but in acts uh, i don't know whether you've heard this story where there's a, a guy called philip and this is after jesus ascended into heaven and uh, holy spirit's come down and he's prompted to go to um a road to gaza Oh, is that, and, um, is that story of the bloke on the chariot? Yeah, that's I think the one. I've read yes, that yeah, before. Yeah. So do you remember what happens? Um, he's, he's reading from the book of Isaiah. Yeah. And um, Philip goes over to him and says, um, need any help? And he says, yeah, I haven't got a clue what's going on here. Please come up and read it with me. And then he says, this is basically all about Jesus. Mm. So it's not just us thinking there's a connection there. Actually, in the New Testament, it gives us that connection. So um, that is really what this is getting at here. Okay. Yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, that's helpful. Um, yeah. Thank you. Any other surprises? Yeah, I guess, I guess um, you look at the characters in the story and they're all sort of looking after number one, really, aren't they? they, they uh, I, I would have expected that maybe the religious leaders to be nicer than they were, but they all seem pretty nasty out to get Jesus. Um, yeah, yeah. That is quite striking, isn't it? Do you think it's just the, um, the religious leaders who are after? Who's interested in number one? Well, I guess uh, further down, actually, yeah, no, now I read it again, but further down you get um, the crowd in verse 8 uh, talking about um, wanting um, to get Jesus arrested, and then later on they stir, and the chief priests stir up the crowd. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's striking, actually, it's the crowd as well who are saying crucify him. Yes, yeah. Um, just, just get, you get this sense that Jesus is, is completely on his own. Yeah. Because what struck me about the crowd, not about you, but... I would have thought if the crowd had a choice to, to release an innocent man, mm. um, you'd have think they'd go for him, wouldn't you, rather than this, this, this murderer called Barabbas. Um, what about Pilate? Were you surprised by Pilate, his, uh, the way he behaved here? Well, yeah, it seemed like he was sort of um, bowing to peer pressure in some ways. You know, the crowd are kind of vying for uh, Jesus to be crucified, and he's sort of saying what crimes he committed. I saw in verse 14... 
And that, that has been something that's always struck me when I've read about the life of Jesus, that he always seems to have, uh, to give across this understanding that he hasn't done anything wrong, he's innocent. Mm. I guess, maybe I'm wrong, but it, it seems to me that he's innocent, but they're still wanting to condemn him to death. But it's amazing how Pilate seems to just sort of satisfy the crowd. I think it says at the end, doesn't it? Um, here we mm. go, verse 15. He wants to satisfy the crowd, and so Pilate just releases this guy, Barabbas, who's clearly a criminal. It just, the, the injustice of it all sort of really strikes a tumor in me. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, because it looks like he's actually, he sees the innocence of Jesus, doesn't he? But he still doesn't do anything about it. He just goes along with the, the crowd. Mm. Um, what, what would you say are the key teaching points from the passage? Look, taking all that together, all the observations we've been doing, would you say there's key points we're meant to take from this? Well, there's some, one thing I've never really thought about is this whole, what you were saying at the beginning about how certain passages in the Old Testament are fulfilled in Jesus. I've never really thought about that before. So yeah. um, actually, once we had read the Isaiah passage, um, I had heard it before, but never really understood what it was on about. But I mm. can kind of see now it makes more sense mm. um, with Jesus. So that's something I guess I need to look out for more now when I read. Um, I've never seen how the Old Testament sort of relates to the New. I've always thought the Old Testament's a bit irrelevant and outdated. Yeah. So that's been good. Yeah, yeah. Um, let me see if there's anything else. I guess if I was if I was Jesus, I'd just be amazed at um, how much he took all, all this abuse from the crowd, the injustice of it all. Mm. Um, I, I mean, is that is that teaching me that when I face injustice, you know, I should try and respond like Jesus? I think this is a particular situation here. That um, it's not necessarily saying that if you're in that situation, you should respond like Jesus. It's because it's a bit amazing, isn't it? That you know, he, this injustice is going on, his mm. false accusations are made, and he could have defended himself, couldn't he? Mm. And you think, well, why didn't he? Um, why didn't he just sort of say that, actually, I haven't done anything wrong? Um, so I think this is quite a unique situation. And I guess what seems to come together for me is the contrast between, if you look in verse 1, the chief priests, the elders, etc., made their plans, and you're thinking, well... Where does that fit into God's plans? Is it really God's plan that Jesus should be crucified? I mean, what, what do you think about that? I mean, that's, are the chief priests actually succeeding? It looks like they're succeeding their plans, isn't it? Because mm. they've, they're getting rid of Jesus. They've managed to get the crowd on side. Uh, Pilate's not going to change his mind. And at the end of it, um, he hands them, over to be cru- hands them over to be crucified. Yeah, it does possibly. I mean, I, I remember reading in, I think it was in Mark's Gospel, I read something about Jesus sort of saying he was going to go and die, and it did seem a bit strange to me. Because mm. when you read about his life, he seems this amazing man and great teacher, and it does seem a bit unjust that he would go to the cross. It, it seems a funny thing for God to do to send his mm. son into the world. Um, what, what, does that, what does that mean for you? Because I've never really fully understood that. I think what it's saying here in the Bible is that um, Jesus could have stood up for himself. He could have had himself released. In in another passage in Matthew, it says he could have called down legions of angels to actually resist arrest in the first place. But this was all for a purpose. It was all leading up to this point in his life that he's come to die. He came to die for us. And uh, it's quite striking that that Barabbas, this guilty guy, gets set free, and Jesus, the innocent one, is killed. And I think that's a symbol of what is, this is all about, that we actually are no different than the crowd. Mm. We're no different than, than Pilate. We've probably done the same. Um, we're guilty of just making our own plans, looking after ourselves. Mm. Um, I've, never, I've never actually yeah. seen that before. I guess yeah. I've always just looked at, when I've read passages like this before, I've just seen 
these religious leaders and the crowd and sort of said, you know, look at the terrible things they've done. But I've never really seen myself in the passage, really. And yeah. I guess yeah. that is a fair point. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a great thing in terms of applying it to us, that because Jesus carried on with the plan to die, mm-hmm. and he died so we can be forgiven, he died to take the punishment we deserve. Um, the great news about this is we can be forgiven for all the stuff mm-hmm. we've done wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a, in many ways, it's a, a great encouragement to us that Jesus did remain quiet mm-hmm. and that God's plans were fulfilled, that he made many right from the beginning of time, really. Yeah, that's really... Well, I just really pause it there, I think. Um, we could go on, obviously, um, carry on with observation stuff. But um, anybody want to just chip in? Any comments about how they thought that one? Obviously, there's different ways that could have gone that conversation. Um, no Bible study is the same. Um, uh, and it can turn out completely different from how you thought it would go if you, if you prepared a study. And that's partly just being open to the Spirit's leading. I think praying that um, it would go the way the Spirit wants it to go. Um, uh, giving, praying you'd give you wisdom to direct and steer it. That you wouldn't say anything unhelpful as well. But uh, anybody want to just make any comments or ask any questions? I'm using you again. I'm only bringing this up because um, you've mentioned it twice about getting the other person to read the passage, which in some ways is really good, but at least some of the time in our experience, Jackie prefers that I read so she can pay attention to what's being read. Some people at least will find reading out loud, they're focusing so much on trying to read properly that they're not actually taking in what's being said. Hmm. So I wouldn't make too big a deal about that, of trying to get them to read or trying to get them to do this, that, or the other. If they're finding that they learn better hearing, go for it. Yeah, Yeah, I think, uh, I suppose as I said last week, it's just being sensitive to who you're reading with, isn't it? Um, If they're not a believer, probably you wouldn't encourage them to read. If they're they're starting out in their faith, yeah, see where they're at. But yeah, there's no hard and fast rule. Anybody else? Um, Or maybe you want to share some... uh, of your own experience yeah Alan just an observation it was very noticeable who was doing most of the talking mm. it wasn't you is that a good thing a positive thing or um, yes mm. uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was just on one point about the could, could Jesus get himself out of that situation and you could yeah. draw in other points in the not too distant, you know, chronologically not the distant past within the Gospels where Jesus was in similar situations with a crowd who wanted to kill him and walk through the crowd. Yeah. Um, or when the uh, prostitute was brought before him to, st- get st- to be stoned mm. and he said, well, the first man without sin cast the first stone. Mm. Um, so he had been in situations where it felt like he was trapped before. Because one of the questions might be that, well, he had no choice. He was going to, mm. he, you know, he was in a courtroom with people who wanted him dead. Yeah. And he wasn't getting yeah. out of that situation. Yeah. So him being silent would, might be just him sub- submitting to that. Mm. But he wasn't submitting to the guilty plea. He was submitting himself to the cross, which is where he was ultimately going. And yes, he could have got himself out of that situation. But actually, in a sense, he couldn't because he needed to go to the cross. Yeah, mm. yeah. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's interesting knowing how to, what to respond in terms of which other passages to go to sometimes, because um, I don't want to give you the impression that you've got to know the Bible inside out before you can start a Bible study. Um, 
you may have very limited places you can go, but that doesn't matter. Um, you know, even if you're just focusing on the passage in question, that's still in itself a great, great thing. But yeah, thanks, Stuart. Sorry, yeah, Helen. Yeah. I suppose it's a question more about what if you've got two um, Christians who are fairly well matched? In yeah. yeah. So it's slightly different. It's quite hard to get resources um, to know how to go in a, in a, in a, in a study together. There's because um, other it's closed questions we've found that we've got studies that we've bought and they uh, are just closed questions of observation which you can you know just <laughs> answer mm. straight away and you think oh, are we being stupid aren't we are we not reading enough into this um, so it's quite hard it was, I think some guidance generally on stuff not now or whatever but just mm. on, on resources that you can use because you probably know more about these than, than we do off the shelf type thing of how yeah. to actually have a conversation yeah. with another Christian and to grow in your faith with another Christian yeah. would be quite yeah. helpful rather yeah. than you're not always one who knows a lot more than the other no and that's a good point um, I, mean, I think as I was saying before I think there's a real benefit to helping younger Christians grow and I think there's almost a responsibility I think on more mature Christians to do that but if you are just reading the Bible with a, with a, with a peer if you like um, you can still ask these same questions really you know together work out what is the meaning of the passage um, how does it apply to both of us um, share and learn from one another because you know we'll all have different insights um, but make sure both of you I suppose stick to the passage and don't get too sort of um, distracted but yeah thanks I think I'd just add to that um we need to have confidence in the word of God ourselves so if you're a more mature Christian you know your Bible well and you've been reading the Bible all your life so we shouldn't always feel the only way we could ever read the Bible is using notes that help us read the Bible and God will speak through his spirit as we read the Bible and and, you know sometimes some of us will use by reading notes when we read our Bible sometimes we just read our Bibles and God speaks and so I think um probably more people could just read the Bible with a friend without any notes than they realize. Um, it's, it's just opening up God's word and with a real prayerful heart that God would speak. And, and so I'd just encourage some people, perhaps if you've done a bit more of this, don't feel you have to use notes. Um, let God speak to you straight from Scripture because there's something really exciting about that as well. Um, just to give you confidence maybe, yeah. Great. Good, I think we'll, f- we'll finish that little bit there. Um, Obviously, at the end of uh, having studied with somebody, the great thing is to pray in what you've been looking at, so you don't just uh, leave it there, Um, particularly applications. You want to be praying that uh, God would help you um, take those away and that you'd be changed. Ultimately, if we read the Bible, we want to be changed by it. We want to grow in those convictions, those that character and and that competence. So it'd be good just as we finish, um, just maybe a few people around you to pray, maybe something that's been... Uh, said in that passage or maybe just the whole idea of reading the Bible with somebody maybe pray for somebody you'd like to read the Bible with Um, uh, as we've heard from Norman somebody maybe who's never read the Bible before Um, pray as you feel led Um, is there anything else that's going on in your life at the moment you'd like somebody else to pray for do that as well Um, let's just have a bit of time praying in small groups for, for different things that are on our hearts at the moment thank you going to uh, close by singing a, a good uh, hymn together it's um, a traditional hymn it's slightly adapted but um, I think a lot of us will know it it's facing a task unfinished no other name has power to save but Jesus Christ the Lord let's uh, stand to sing let's uh, close by saying the grace together the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ the love of God 
and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen.